Hello and welcome to Crawford Media. My name is Hal Crawford. Today I'm speaking to Bill Gruskin, an American journalist and professor who's worked as an editor with the Miami Herald and the Wall Street Journal, among other publications. He now teaches at Columbia University in New York and Bill knows a thing or two about digital news. He took on the editor role at the Wall Street Journal online in 2001, a few months before the attacks of September 11. After that, he got the journal's digital subscription base up to 1 million people in the early 2000s, well before the industry had caught subscription fever. I wanted to speak to Bill because he has such great experience in news and also because he's in Australia on an investigation into something that has taken a lot of my attention over the last year. Why are you in Australia? I am here as the international journalist in residence at the Judith Nielsen Institute. It's actually named for Alan Moorhead, so I guess I should give him some credit as well. He certainly deserves it. So I've been here since late January and I'll be staying till the middle of March. That's uh, that's a pretty sweet sweet gig. Now, as I understand it, Bill, from a previous conversation that we had, you have a specific area of interest in, in Australian media that you're investigating. Can you tell me about that? Sure. So just uh, to kind of preface that, I'm the first international journalist in residence, so we're all trying to sort this out as we go along. But one of the things that Mark and I agreed upon, in addition to doing a number of public speaking events and a few lectures and that kind of thing is I would want to tackle some journalistic topic. And given that Nielsen's focus is on journalism and ideas, as I was looking for a possible piece of research to do, I focus on the media bargaining code, which is almost a year old now. It's, it's not an exaggeration to say it's a revolutionary idea, and it has a lot of positives and also some negatives attached to it, but it's one of the most fascinating things I've seen happen on the media landscape in a long time and one that I know a lot of other countries are looking at. So it's, it seemed like an appropriate thing to, to dig into once I got here. Mark and the JNI team were fully supportive. And so I've been spending a significant, certainly not all of my time, but uh, part of my time looking into that. So what's the output going to be in, in you know, six weeks' time or whenever you finish um, your work? What are you actually going to do? My plan is to cover it like a journalist to it. I teach at Columbia University, but I'm at the journalism school, which is a real professional training school. It is not a communications department. I don't have a PhD. So I think it's just a really good story. So my plan is to write a story about how it's gone over the past year and also to look at some of the implications for what this means for other countries as well as for Australia as the, as the treasurer evaluates the performance of it over the past year. I just want to stress, I'm not doing a deep data dive. I'm, this is not an ethnographic study. I'm, I'm approaching this way. A, a journalist would. I think you probably know that the jury is in for me and I'm not a huge fan of the code, but the jury uh, is still out for you, isn't it? Yeah, very much. I would approach it, first of all, pretty impartially because I come into it with kind of an open mind. And I would say, having spent a week or two doing some interviews and reading a lot, I still come down in the middle. I mean, I think there's obviously some things from a journalism perspective that, that would have been a, a lot better. At the same time, 
it's hard to argue with the fact that there's a significant transfer of money from Facebook and Google to to news organizations, and you don't see that happening in a lot of other parts of the world. So I, I think, I think it's a very complex story. I don't think it's a black and white. There'll be a lot of shades of gray, and my favorite stories are those that have shades of gray in them. What would be great, Bill, is if in seven weeks or so, when you're a full bottle and you've uh, written that report and I've read it, what would be great is if we have another little conversation and uh, talk more fully about it. That's certainly possible. For- but first, I got to finish the research and do the writing. Yeah. And uh, your career has been very much right inside news media. Can you tell me about that career? How do you sum it up? I've been fortunate to work in a lot of different places in a lot of different environments with very different audiences from a small newspaper in North Dakota um, on an Indian reservation to working at the Wall Street Journal and or Bloomberg News. I've been very lucky to have worked in large newsrooms and small newsrooms and and uh, to to be a witness to just a fascinating couple of decades in the journalism industry. It's, it's changed just so dramatically since when I got into it in the late 1970s. I've spoken to a lot of journalists and they they wait for things to happen. They don't have a guiding light or principle in their career. Mm-hmm. W- which camp do you fall into? Are you a, a guy who's had a goal or you just did what happened? Pretty much the latter. I feel like when I got into this business in the late 70s and, and early 80s, it was actually a pretty, it was a very tough job market. A lot of, <clears throat> at least in the United States, most big cities had two newspapers, a morning and an afternoon paper. And in most of those cities, the afternoon paper was closing, was about to close, was cutting way back. So a lot of mid-career journalists were hitting the market, and I had a pretty unusual resume, one that didn't quite fit with the traditional view of what a young journalist should do. So I've, I've seen good times in the business, and I've seen some rough times going back to when I first got into it. I actually have a PDF with the rejection letters from about 25 or 30 newspapers from when I was applying back in the early 80s. And I bring it out every so often to keep me honest and humble. (laughs) Yeah, and and perhaps to remind yourself that things weren't as good as people say they were in the old days. Well, exactly, yeah. Or there there were good times and bad times. I mean, I would say in the late 80s and through most of the 1990s, at least in the American newspaper business, it was a pretty good time. There were a ton of ads. You you were looking for stories to to fill the big holes. Advertisers were jamming more and more ads into the paper every day and it helped to finance a lot of really good journalism. But obviously, the, the idea of a, of a big news organization relying solely on print ads is something that is gone and we are not going to see it again. Yeah, and and that that lack of uh, revenue leads to fundamental changes, doesn't it? I, I noticed yeah. uh, you mentioned a, a different kind of model for funding local news, one based on endowments. And mm-hmm, right. has your thinking gone any further along there? Are you seeing any examples of where that's working? Oh. There are some amazing examples, but I argued a few years ago in a piece, a short piece for the Neiman Lab was that at least in terms of local news as contrasted to say the New York Times or the BBC or the ABC here, in terms of local news, the, per, the private market just isn't going to finance 
a big newsroom the way it used to before. So by private market, a combination of ads from advertisers and subscription payments from your readers. They're just, it's just hard to see how a business model based on those two prongs, which is most of what financed American print journalism, at least for a long time, is going to work anymore. And so that means, assuming that you think journalism is a public good, and I'm sure you and I would agree on that, then it needs the money to come from somewhere. And in the United States, we tend to be very hesitant to take money from the government for journalism because of the First Amendment and all the concerns about government interference. And so what you have instead, an increasing number of cities and states is a philanthropic model where some prominent people in a city could be Baltimore, it could be Austin, Texas, could be Denver, Colorado, realize that the quality of civic life is determined in part by the quality of journalism and the ability of journalists to do their jobs. And so they ponied up some significant dollars to help to finance new digital-only newsrooms. The Texas Tribune is probably one of the most prominent examples of, of that. It's a enormously successful, large newsroom that covers Texas, does it really well in depth, impartially, in a lot of investigative stuff. ProPublica, speaking of investigative stories, um, has done just terrific work, has won a bunch of Pulitzer Prizes. And those are examples of what we call nonprofit news organizations. In the case of the Texas Tribune, they make a lot of money from contributions and uh, donations, but also from holding events that they can charge significant amounts of money for. Yeah. Now, another interesting thing, Bill, that I noticed that you've been much engaged with recently is the libel case against the New York Times. Yes, um, yeah. Sarah yeah, Palin. Yeah, and, uh, by that. Yeah. yeah. This touches on free speech, which, of course, um, sure. a big ch chunk of your constitution. We don't have a, a constitutional right to free speech in Australia. I'm sure that you've you're aware of that. Do you think this Sarah Palin case, maybe for the listeners, we should just really briefly explain sure. what this Sarah Palin New York Times case is all about? Okay, I'll try to make this as uh, succinct as possible. It goes back to two shootings of Congress people in the United States. First one, I believe, was in 2011 when a crazy guy shot uh, a U.S. Congresswoman named Gabby Giffords in uh, Arizona. She survived, but six other people were killed. At the time, there was some association brought up between that shooting and a map that Sarah Palin's political action committee had put out showing crosshairs on a number of districts, including Gabby Giffords. There was never any evidence that the assassin was motivated by that map or that he had even seen it. So that's the kind of basis for it. Okay, you fast forward six years later, and there's another congressional shooting, and I'm sorry, but this is the United States where there's a ton of guns around. There, there's another shooting this time of the Republican Congress people who were doing a softball practice, and fortunately, nobody was killed in, in that one except for the assassin himself. The New York Times decided they would do an editorial. This is on the opinion page. This has nothing to do with the news side. And end to the editorial, the the head of the editorial page, who was one of the top people in the New York Times, inserted some language with some history about the earlier Arizona shooting that purported to show that it was somehow related to Sarah Palin's crosshair map, which was totally untrue. 
The Times realized their mistake. They corrected it more than once, like 12 hours later. And you would think that'd be the end of the story. But Sarah Palin sued The Times, and it's taken four and a half years. But the case finally went to trial just in the past few weeks. Just interrupting the conversation here to give you an update on this libel case. The media world is currently watching to see if Sarah Palin will appeal the jury's decision to throw the case out. Both jury and judge decided Palin hadn't been defamed, with the judge ruling there was no evidence of malice on the part of the New York Times. That's an important requirement with US libel laws and news organisations. If an appeal happens, there's a potential to rewrite America's extensive free speech defence for journalists and radically alter the mediascape in the US. The case has also been very interesting for media watchers because it has shown how such a prestigious news operation made such a big mistake. And it's fascinating to me because it showed, when you looked at a lot of the depositions and the court files, it showed a lot of dysfunction at the New York Times in terms of how this error got put into the piece in the first place. But it also raises some really interesting issues around whether Palin's lawsuits should have even been allowed to go forward. Yeah, and now tell me about the dysfunction that it's uh, that it's exposed at the New York Times, which is um, fascinating for journalists to observe. Noticing that the editor introduced an error into an opinion piece. Have you ever done that? You're, you've been an editor of many years standing. I certainly, in my rewriting or fiddling around with stories, I certainly messed up a few times. I can't remember ever having to run a correction on a story based on a mistake or an error that I introduced. And maybe I'm just lucky, but part of it is you always want to show your changes to the reporter and not just show it to the reporter, but make sure the reporter feels empowered to say, man, Bill, you really got something wrong here. Either you got something factually wrong, the person's name is spelled with a K, not a C, or the way you've rephrased that really stretches the bounds of what we know. And I like reporters who push back and I tried to work in newsrooms and I tried to create a culture in newsrooms, whether it's me editing their story or somebody else, where the reporter who certainly knows the story better than the editor does, feels empowered to say, I don't think this is right and won't suffer any punishment from it or anything like that. Which is not to say I haven't had some pretty strong discussions with reporters about what we can and can't put into stories, but that's just part of being in a newsroom is part of the fun of it. And the idea is that you hire good people who have strong constitutions and you come up with ways of putting news into the paper that doesn't get you sued. I certainly never do anything along the lines of what the New York Times did in this case, yeah. A lot of working editors uh, brought up in a environment of robust discussion and uh, ritualized abuse and so forth (laughs) lament now that they can no longer indulge in abusing someone roundly for filing sloppy copy, for Uh example. What's your opinion about that? I don't think abusing people is a good idea, either verbally or, God forbid, physically. And I think newsrooms have creative people who work under a lot of pressure It can be deadline pressure. It could be the pressure of getting something wrong. As we've seen with this New York Times libel case, this thing's been going on for four and a half years. It's just 
force a shadow on the lives of, of the people who are involved. And knowing that as a journalist, you just feel like at any time I, I could insert a sentence or a line here and I could wind up spending the next four and a half years of my life dealing with some libel suits. I think that the old way of kind of treating journalists, especially young reporters in an abusive fashion or something along those lines is a real mistake. I think the other thing that's going on right now is journalists individually are under a lot more pressure thanks to Twitter and other social media and the people and particularly women and journalists of color and particularly women journalists of color find themselves on the receiving end of really horrible, often anonymized hatred and, and vitriol directed towards them. And I think newsrooms have to be really aware of this and protect their people, defend them and find ways to support them because it's not the editor's name that goes on the story. It's the reporter's name. And if some crazy person decides they don't like that story, they don't call the editor anymore. They go after the person whose name is on the top of the story, often in a really unfair and often a racist and sexist way. So, Bill, you mentioned you've seen a huge amount of change over your career. What's remained the same in newsrooms and for journalists? You know, I think that the Palin case is a pretty good example of it in the sense that adhering to facts, approaching stories with a really open mind. Every journalist has a hypothesis when they start working on a story, but being willing to talk to lots of people on various sides of the issue and being willing to challenge the hypothesis you came in with when you realize that the facts lead to a different conclusion. I think those are really important elements of journalism. And that was true when I got into it a long time ago. And it's uh, every bit as true now. Yeah. I would say the other thing is finding things to write about that are truly relevant to people's lives that are not simply something you do because the editor's spouse saw it on their their way to work or something like that. Mm. But, but really learning who, who your readers are and what community of people that you're trying to serve and then gearing your coverage that way. It's really important. What's the toughest challenge you've ever had, Bill? I've had a few. I would say I was running the Wall Street Journal online on September 11th. A number of us, including me, were in the office that day. Our office was across the street from the World Trade Center. Fortunately, none of our colleagues were were killed, although people were, you know, it was common to take a subway into the World Trade Center and then just walk across the street to the journal. But fortunately, none of, none of our colleagues faced that. But that was a really tough situation. Obviously, that day, it was incredibly hard just trying to keep track of everybody. I also had my wife and daughters were, were all in lower Manhattan or, or Brooklyn. It was really difficult on a personal level. And then we spent the next year working in a remote office in central Jersey, New Jersey, about an hour and a half away from our old office. And I had to keep the staff together and keep them doing what they were doing at a time that was traumatic on a global and national level, but also very much on a personal level. We had a lot of people who were there when the towers came down, when people were jumping out of the World Trade Center. And we didn't have any kind of, we didn't have any kind of a framework. We didn't have any history of, it is, oh, this is our, our, our second or third go at this. I, you know, I said, I was at the Herald when we dealt with Hurricane Andrew and that was horrible, but 
we had dealt with hurricanes before, but we'd never dealt with this kind of catastrophic act of uh, terrorism before. And so keeping everybody together, keeping my own sanity, working with my family during what was a very disruptive time and continuing to put out a 24 seven website was really challenging. It was also very, it was quite a gratifying experience too, because the staff did amazing work. The journal was very supportive of the staff. And so it was not easy, but I I felt honored to be part of it. Was your newsroom there opposite the World Trade Center, was that operational? Did that remain operational or did you go offline? Oh, no. While we had to evacuate the building, and thank God we did when we did, because when the towers came down, all the windows across the street got blown out. There's incredible photographs of what that was like. But we were able to turn it over to our crews in Europe and uh, Asia, and they kept the site running because obviously they weren't affected to the extent that we were. And in some cases, our journalists were finding ways to feed quotes in color. But keep in mind, this is 2001. The first time I I used a, a BlackBerry was was on the morning of September 11th, I borrowed a friend's BlackBerry and sent an email to a colleague to tell him I was okay and everybody else was okay. I yeah. still have a copy of that email. I mean, that was one of those days where you just knew that it was uh, the joint of history. How much did that day change your career? I think in terms of my management style, it it you know forced me to really deal on a personal level with people in, in probably ways that I had never really needed to do in the past to really deal with their angst and their and their trauma and just the sheer drudgery of having to commute an hour and a half each way to this crappy kind of a back office building in, in, in central New Jersey and deal with just the pure hassle of it and trying to hire people and, and keep them happy it was really mm. difficult, but, mm. but good. I'm interested in managing journalists and the theories uh-huh. of managing yeah. journalists yeah. and that very i imagine they're very particular people i don't know because i've never worked in any other environment really mm-hmm. um one of the ideas that i've been exploring is that people are responsible for their own emotions and and that they choose to feel how they feel this comes from the work of alfred adler a a, uh, a viennese psychologist from the late 19th century so it's not not exactly uh, mainstream, but uh, what, what do you think of, of that idea and, and how do you conceive of managing journalists? So just start with the first one. I think, I guess people are responsible for their own emotions, but when you have outside stimuli, whether it's the pandemic or 9-11 or a hurricane or something, I, I think it's uh, asking a lot of people to say, well, wow, you, you're like totally, you know, unable to to work today, you just got to get your act together. There are outside stimuli and outside factors that can affect people. Um, say nothing of racism or economic inequality or anything along those lines. So I'll just put that aside. I think in terms of newsroom management, I think I've worked for some really great bosses. I've worked for a couple of bad ones very early in my career, but I've worked for mostly really good ones since then. And one of my favorites is a guy named Paul Steiger, who was managing editor of the Wall Street Journal for a long time, and then was the founding editor of the ProPublica investigative site. And he just had, he had a very calm demeanor. Um, 
you know, we would get beaten on stories by the New York Times sometimes, and he wouldn't start screaming and pounding things, but he would say, I want to know how that happened. And more importantly, I want to know what we're doing to make sure that doesn't happen again. And that could be making sure the reporter on that beat understands the significance of this or helping him or her develop better sources or maybe taking that reporter off that beat because they just aren't equipped to cover it. And always trying to push forward, not being a recrimination type of boss who's always looking for screw-ups. And the other thing he used to say is he wanted stories with a moral force to them. I, I think that was his word. In other words, stories that you didn't have to layer on a lot of crazy language to it or anything along those lines. You just put the facts out there in a really compelling way and the moral force of the story kind of came through. And I think that's something that's been lost in, in a lot of journalism I see now. Is that related to trying to come from a particular point of view? Every reporter has a, a point of view. You know, it'd be hard to cover Trump and for four or five years. And at the end of the four years, every day I wake up and I don't know what Trump's going to do today. You know exactly what, what kind of person that he is. So I think it's it's perfectly fine for a reporter to have a point of view. I, th I think a reporter ought to let the facts dictate the story. And it's fine to say, we're going to run a story. And I know about 75% of what I wish I'd known. And so I'm going to present the facts this way. And I'm also going to be transparent about what I don't know. And, and you can write a pretty compelling piece that way. And the important thing is not to elide over what you don't know and not to pretend more than you actually do. Thanks to Bill for the conversation. I'll get back in contact when he's ready to pass judgment on the media bargaining code. Until next week, thanks for listening. And thanks to Kevin for the music.